What does it mean to be a Canadian conservative in 2021? What are the core values and beliefs that hold conservatives together? Today, we'll speak to the former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada to discuss. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. everyone, thank you so much for tuning into the show. Now, as we get closer to Christmas, as the news cycle starts to slow down, we like to take a step back and sort of take stock of the situation in the country, look at, for instance, conservatism more broadly speaking. And so to do that today, I am joined, I'm honored to be joined by Andrew Scheer. Andrew Scheer is the MP for Regina Capel. He's a former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He was the 35th Speaker of the House of Commons, and he's currently the Conservative Critic for Infrastructure and communities. As leader of the Conservatives, Andrew vouched for families, lower taxes, and controlled government spending. And while the Conservatives were unsuccessful at ousting Justin Trudeau in the 2019 election that Andrew Scheer led, he was able to increase the party's seat count, increase the vote count, he won the popular vote, and he prevented Justin Trudeau from winning another majority government. So Andrew, it's so great to have you on the Candace Malcolm Show. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me on. It's always great to chat with you as well. Great. So you, you, you sort of had big shoes to fill when you became leader of the Conservative Party. You came right after Stephen Harper, and Stephen Harper was sort of the founder of the party, sort of the father of the movement. He helped unite the Progressive Conservatives and the Canadian Alliance, which he was the leader of. And so I want to ask you, uh, you know, it's been now, what, five years since, since Harper was the leader of the party. And as a Conservative MP, does that Harper coalition still exist? Um, and, and if if so, how, if not, what, what what's changed? And what is it that holds conservatives together these days? Well, that's, uh, that is a great question. And, uh, you know, you could probably write a book on analyzing all the different iterations of the conservative movement over uh, Canada's history and, and, and leading up to where we are today. I've always believed that there are a few principles that all conservatives can can agree on in in general terms and and the biggest one of that is just kind of the the no acknowledging that there are natural limits to government that the government isn't supposed to uh, grow so big as to fill every space in our society and uh, and that's something that you know a, a conservative from Western Canada conservative from Eastern Canada can agree on that somebody a fiscal conservative a, a democratic reform conservative can agree on that uh, at a certain point government needs to know its bounds and I think that's the biggest difference between left-wing people and conservative-minded people in Canada today is that the left is always clamoring for more and more government more government restrictions more government control more government regulations and conservatives understand that at some point you have to say no it's better for society to solve this challenge in another way other than government. I think that's that's the biggest uh, thing that holds us together. And then respect for the tax dollar as well. Uh, we are hyper aware that every dollar that the government has to spend first has to come out of a taxpayer's pocket. And when government takes from one to give to another, that there are, are costs associated with that. And so we respect the taxpayer dollar uh, profoundly and, and really try to measure our success in getting good results for the least amount of money spent and the liberals have it backwards they brag about how much money they're spending and don't really care if the money's doing any good so i would say that those are the two biggest principles that all conservatives can 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 agree on okay so so i mean the conservative party in canada is a big tent conservative party 
And, you know, it, it includes libertarians, fiscal conservatives, uh, people who are more social conservative, religious conservatives, new Canadians, those types of people, um, as well as sort of more socially progressive um, red Tories that might, that might come from um, Eastern Canada or the big cities. And, and so it's, it's tough to sort of keep all of these all of these types of conservatives together in one party. Uh, you look down at the U.S. and the Republican Party, they're also a big tent conservative party. They disagree on more things than they agree on, probably. But what keeps them together is the respect for the Constitution. That's something that they can hold up and say, we, 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 this is what we respect. Um, these, the, you know, the limits on government are written down in this document, and we're going to try to uphold this uh, document. Canada, we don't really have an equivalent of that. So, so how, do, how do conservatives prevent the sort of um, slow, sort of uh, slippery slope to bigger government that you sort of see you know, every every year there's new government suggestions that the, the liberals come up with, new uh, ideas to push us into bigger and bigger government, more and more spending, and the conservatives are just kind of constantly reacting and, and pushing back. So, so do you think that we would be better served uh, as a conservative movement or conservatives in Canada if we had something very specific um, that helped us, you know, keep keep government limited, uh, stay away from big government initiatives, and always sort of defaulting to government? What 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 do you think we could we could possibly use in Canada to, to help sort of um, anchor us to a more principled conservatism? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think the key is to find the common ground between the different kinds of conservatives that, that, that you've mentioned. And, uh, you know, I, the, 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 the key for our conservative caucus and our conservative movement is to recognize that we, we do agree on much more than we disagree on, or at the very least, the things that we agree on are, are, are higher ranked priorities for most members of, of, of the party. So there is actually a lot of room to, to build those coalitions between the different types of, uh, of conservatives. Um, you talk about kind of current issues and how conservatives can kind of always uh, respond to them without necessarily always being reactive. And and that is a challenge when you're up against uh, uh, two federal parties who are constantly advocating for more spending and more government control and the mainstream media doing the, the very same, you know, always kind of uh, creating that market amongst Canadians for more and more government. That's why I've always uh, supported independent media such as yourselves and, and, and others who are kind of trying to, to, to tell another side of the story. If we use the example of, of kind of some rock solid principles that conservatives can build that narrative around, uh, we're actually in a great position to do that uh, and link it back to the charter. Uh, the charter guarantees free speech. And here we have in the current context, we have Justin Trudeau promoting the idea of uh, tabling uh, legislation, announcing his intention to regulate the internet, that uh, that he's going to restrict free speech and freedom of expression, especially as it relates to what Canadians can post and what they can see online. Uh, that's something that runs counter to you know, our entire uh, history as a country and, and certainly the Charter and the Bill of Rights that John Diefenbaker brought in. Uh, free speech is an essential bedrock that all conservatives can agree on. So here we have a, a great issue where we can show Canadians that, and tell this, tell the reasons why we don't want the government to have that power. The, the thing that's so kind of seductive about the left-wing ideology and, and, and their, their communications is that uh, it, it's often very, you know, they can, they can lead with their motives, you know, so we have, we do have some things online that I, as a parent, uh, am concerned about. I'm concerned about bullying. I'm concerned about people promoting hatred. Um, and so the, the left comes along and solves that with more government that they do this all the time on fiscal issues, on, on all kinds of, of different policy matters. And a lot of people want that 
problem solved. And so when the left-wing parties are saying, well, government's the right thing to do it, uh, it's, it's, it there's a simplicity about that that you know, it, it, many people can be swayed by that. So what conservatives need to do is we need to say, hold on a second, we're concerned about the same thing. We don't want people to be bullied online. We don't, you know, we want to have some kind of uh, ability for, for people to interact online without being exposed to hatred and things like that. But you don't want to live in the world in which the government gets to decide that. And the, the downsides, the negative consequences of empowering government to do more things always creates more misery uh, than, uh, than, than, solving the problem and we see this time and time again in every state that gets bigger and bigger and more and more intrusive into people's lives they always hide their their bad policies with good intentions we saw it in the soviet union we saw it in east germany you know, the, the berlin wall was was designed to keep enemies of the state out originally and so we always see the left dressing up their their horrible policies with good intentions and what conservatives have to do is we have to constantly remind people about the downsides of the expansion of government control, the misery that state intervention into the economy, curtailments on our individual liberties uh, lead to. And, and we need to do that everywhere we see it so that we can, you know, make the case for smaller government actually leading to an improvement in the quality of life from fiscal issues to societal issues, uh, you name it. Uh, our, our principles will always have better results than, than what the left is offering. It's been t tested and found to be true everywhere it's been tried. Absolutely. And I, I, I will just note that when you were giving your farewell speech as leader of the Conservative Party, one of the things you said was you told conservatives specifically to challenge the legacy media and their left wing narratives. And you gave a little shout out to True North. So we, re we really appreciate it. We've appreciated it at the moment. We still do. And I, I think it's so important that that we offer alternatives, right? So, so it's not just that conservatives can stand there and say, no, it's a bad idea for the government to regulate speech, but you have to offer an alternative, be it you know, in, in civil society. Um, a, a lot of the solutions that the liberals propose for problems in the society, they'd probably be better off served by, solved by the community or, or by individual families or by churches and charities, as opposed to the sort of heavy-handedness of the state. And same with the media. It's like, we can sit there and criticize the media all day, uh, but we should, we should also turn in and support conservative efforts uh, to try to make a more balanced uh, landscape in the media. So, so we, we really appreciate you saying that. And uh, really, uh, you're one of the few conservative uh, voices that, at the time that was saying that. So we, we really appreciate it. Yeah, I know. So, if, uh, if, thanks for that. If, I mean, I, I, um, I, I get frustrated when I see kind of the monolithic media narrative uh, get constructed around various issues and, and recognize how hard it is for conservatives to, to, to kind of swim upstream against that. And, you know, I haven't agreed with every single thing I see on True North or, you know, the post-millennial or some other, these other independent things. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just, I, I really appreciate what those, what yours and, and others are trying to do with just creating more dialogue, more, more opportunities for the other side of the, of the debate to be talked about and dissected. And for, quite frankly, to cover things that the mainstream media just won't cover uh, because, you know, of, of the bias there. So there's a lot of things that, that, that you guys have, uh, have, have covered that the mainstream media won't. And it's imperative for voters to, to have all sides of an issue and to find out kind of what some alternative philosophies are about that. So uh, yeah, no, ha happy to, happy to give you the shout out and, uh, and I hope, I hope, I hope it, I, I hope it continues to grow. 
Well, thank you so much. We've had a, we've had a great year, and uh, you know, I, I think that the, the work that we're that we're doing, I, I don't I don't always agree with everything that's on True North either, because the, the the idea is that we have different perspectives, different voices, but then when it comes to the news, we just sort of try to report the facts as they are. And like you say, so many times it's a story that 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 should be covered in the legacy media. The CBC should be reporting on these things. But they don't. I want to ask you a little bit about your role as the shadow minister, the critic of infrastructure and communities. Because while you, uh, while, while Catherine McKenna was the infrastructure minister, you helped shine light on the fact that the government had spent 188 billion dollars in something called an investing in Canada plan. It was slammed by the auditor general. Thousands of projects were missing or unaccounted for. There were massive delays, no tracking. Um, so for, for viewers who might be unfamiliar uh, with the infrastructure. Uh, portfolio and this government's failed plan. Uh, you, don't, you really don't hear about it much in the media given such a huge price tag. Um, I'm wondering if you could just sort of shine some light on the situation and, and, and talk about um, you know, what, what this money was supposed to be for uh, in, in an ideal world. Should it be spent or, or, or is that too much? And, and, and if, if you were the uh, infrastructure minister, how would you sort of better handle uh, this file? Right. Well, it's a huge file. And as you point out, it's $180 billion. Uh, what we found over the last uh, couple of years is that the government has put, the liberal government has put in all kinds of filters and lenses aimed at des- achieving certain outcomes, uh, but they had no ability to track those outcomes. So, so they, they, they'd say, you know, our priority is to get, you know, X type of projects built and it'll have this kind of, of impact. And then what the auditor general found out was that there was no tracking mechanism to see if, if those targets were, were even being hit. Uh, hit. Uh, in addition, we've heard from municipalities who all over the country, every, every region who have good projects, projects that will have a huge return on investment, you know, uh, expanding road access or expanding uh, 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 water capacity to handle new, new growth within a community. And what they're telling us is that the projects are just sitting on tables in, in, in Ottawa. And uh, because of the delays, the costs are going up and uh, and the timelines are getting stretched. So very, very critical report from the Auditor General. Uh, we've also heard that, that they put in all these lenses, uh, they call the uh, filters or lenses to screen out which projects will be approved and which ones won't. And some of those lenses are really preventing good projects from going ahead. So for example, there's a climate change lens, there's an indigenous lens, there's several other lenses, which if projects don't speak to that, then they fall down the ranking list. And as a result, there's a lot of communities where, you know, they just, they need regular old infrastructure, you know, they, they need their, their, their roads rebuilt, they need highway access, they need water systems, and there isn't always a, a linkage to some of those lenses. And so what we've heard from the Federation of Canadian Municipalities is that we need some more flexibility, which goes back to another conservative principle, which is the decentralization of government and recognizing that Ottawa doesn't know best uh, and that creating a one-size-fits-all program where you're applying the same regulatory and same parameters from coast to coast for large cities and small, that it doesn't work. Uh, we're big believers in letting the provinces and letting municipalities d- determine for themselves what their priorities are. And we can support that without totally dictating what how they should be spending the money that, that they receive from Ottawa. In addition, what we found out, uh, Candice, was about the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, which is uh, a giant boondoggle, a $35 billion bank that Justin Trudeau created, which was supposed to leverage private sector investment. And the idea was that if the government took on some of the risk of these large projects, that more private sector investors would put their own money 
into some of these large scale projects. Well, Justin Trudeau must be the only person who could run a bank in these days that loses money, uh, but uh, the operating costs keep going up. There's been no private sector leveraging at all. And the bank hasn't completed a single project in over four years of existence. It's basically become a corporate welfare bank. Uh, we found uh, projects where large companies were promoting a project. Uh, for example, Fortis Energy was promoting a, a project to help one of their subsidiaries uh, fill the needs of the electricity market. Great project, but it's a multi-billion dollar company that has lots of success in the energy sector, both in the United States and Canada. And for some reason, Justin Trudeau decided that Canadian taxpayers should help underwrite this project and, and put your tax dollar to help uh, into a project, help a giant multi-billion dollar company make even more money. And conservatives have no problem with, with companies making money, providing goods and services and, and making profit on that for its workers and its shareholders. Uh, but we don't believe that the Canadian taxpayer should be underwriting these projects when large profitable companies are already doing that type of thing. It's wild. And, and again, you don't really hear too much about that. Andrew, it's, it's wild how much government, uh, how much money this Trudeau government just wastes without even regard. I mean, creating a bank that does nothing uh, for $35 billion, it's outrageous. So in Canada, this is a final question. We have a real cost of living crisis. It's, uh, constantly hear from people trying to uh, afford to buy their first home. They end up having to move like, you know, an hour and a half away from Toronto just to be able to afford a single family home. Uh, you know, when it comes to the cost of filling up gas, the cost of getting groceries, everything is more expensive. I think the housing thing really is such a big issue for Canadians. And we don't we don't really see, you know, in theory, that's maybe what an infrastructure and communities minister would do. And yet that's not doesn't really seem to be the focus of this government. Like you said, they're more focused on ideology and making sure that there's climate change and, and indigenous lenses on things, whatever that means. What, what, what do you think that the, the Liberal government could do right now to make things more affordable for Canadians? Well, the first thing they need to do is they need to stop printing money. The, 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 the increase in the housing costs is directly linked to inflation and inflation rates are running over double the normal rate of inflation. Uh, that is all directly linked to the government of Canada running out of money to borrow. And so they turned to the Bank of Canada and they cranked up the printing presses. And uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, the Bank of Canada was creating $5 billion worth of new currency every week. Uh, they've tapered that off somewhat, but they're still creating a lot of money every week out of thin air, buying government bond and flooding the financial system with brand new money. That always causes inflation. Anytime you have more dollars chasing the same amount of goods, you're going to see prices go up especially when it comes to assets, the, 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 the institutions, the, the financial sector, they, they receive the money first and they, they understand that to protect against inflation, you have to buy assets. So there's been a lot of investment, uh, not, not in terms of building new homes, but buying up homes you know, throughout Canada as a, as a hedge against uh, inflation. That's part of it. Uh, the money flowing through the system also uh, causes inflation, which has an effect on home prices as well. But then there's a larger problem with, uh, or an equal problem as it relates to the supply of new homes coming onto the market. And one of the things that we've talked about as the Conservative Party, both in this election and, and in the 2019 election, we talked about making it easier for new units to come onto the market, that uh, all, the, all the policy tools on the demand side won't work if there isn't an increase on the supply side as well. And so some of the things we've talked about was linking some of the infrastructure dollars to municipalities to create more housing stock. So that could 
be investments in public transit to, 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 to enable more developments. It could uh, look at incentivizing municipalities to reduce their regulatory framework and their, their approvals process timeline. There was a CD Howe report that indicated that there's over $200,000 in the cost of the average home in Canada is directly linked to regulatory issues at the planning level, at the municipal and provincial level. So there's a lot that we can do to free up new, uh, to facilitate new units coming onto the market by working with municipalities, incentivizing them to reduce the regulatory framework and their timelines and build that critical infrastructure in areas and ways that can build up that housing stock. If we don't look at the supply side and we only look at the demand side, we're just gonna have more dollars chasing the same number of units. We're gonna continue to see that cycle of prices going up. Yeah, I mean, you see that I'm from Vancouver originally, I spent some time in the summer there. And, you know, you have all these whole communities where there's just single family homes, even though, you know, there, there are apartment complexes sort of nearby. And it's like, you know, so many pe more people could live here. Uh, obviously, you'd have to fix the, the roads and the bridges and through fares because the traffic is already really bad in Vancouver. But it's, it's pretty shocking how many single family homes there are right in the center of Vancouver that could, could, could easily be converted. Well, it's, it's really interesting uh, stuff, Andrew, food for thought. And I appreciate your insightful comments, especially on what it means to be a conservative. So uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Merry Christmas to you and your family. And we hope to see you again in 2022. Merry Christmas to, to you too, and all the best for the new year. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.